Okay, welcome. Welcome to Rector's Forum. What's the big idea? What is the big idea where we are going through a number of key themes of Scripture? These are themes that will help unlock the narrative. If you understand these themes, you will more likely understand the narrative sweep of this, of the Bible. And so that's the goal. And uh, today we're talking about sacrifice and atonement. We also thought we'd do something a little differently by um, doing, instead of doing the lecture setup, we would do the, the TBS setup and cultivate relationships. You could turn inward on one another. And um, anyways, hope it's going well. Sacrifice and atonement. That's what we're covering today. Two ideas which are really, are really two sides to the same coin. And I want to get into the mystery, the heart of sacrifice and atonement by starting off with what we might call a parable of a playground. Parable of a playground. So imagine a beautiful day where you and your children or your grandchildren decide to walk down the road to the playground. And you've come to this playground for years. It's familiar. It's fun. You yourself have memories there. It's a place of familiarity and comfort. And your child or grandchild is having a wonderful time digging in the sandbox, swinging on the swing, laughing at two squirrels that are chasing one another. Birds swoop around joyfully in the spring air, and you've brought a delightful new book that you've been waiting to crack open for months. And finally, you begin reading it, and it is so, so good. But then two other parents show up with their children, they seem pleasant. They're, they're laughing. They've got coffee. You know, they're making a little bit of noise. The birds scatter. The squirrels are nowhere to be seen any longer. The other kids begin running circles around the swing set. And unfortunately, there's only one bench. So the other parents join you on the bench and begin chatting away. Your own child seems a little bit intimidated by these slightly older children. They're larger, they're somewhat rambunctious, they're pouring water now into the sandbox, mixing it into a mud pit, but you immerse yourself back into your book. Kids will be kids, you say, and you notice that your neighbors have begun to read their own books as well, and the three kids are playing together well enough for now. Suddenly, you hear a scream. Your child had mud thrown into their eyes and is crying as kids, those two other kids, continue to kick sand and dirt on your child. The other parents notice, and they don't do anything. Then your child responds in turn. He picks up a rock out of the sand pit that he's found, and he hurls it at one of the kids, hitting him just above the eye. A gash is formed. Blood starts pouring down. Your son is now both victim and perpetrator. I have no personal experience of this, by the way. <laughs> I really don't. In turn, the other child's companion lifts up a heavy, old, rusty, yellow Tonka truck. You know, the really old ones that weigh like 20 pounds. And he crashes it on your son's leg. And you hear a crack. You are sure his leg is now broken. The other parents, 
they notice and again do nothing. Your son cries as the other children run off to the swing set and begin swinging. But you also, you do nothing. You simply turn back to the book that you're reading, which the other parents have also been reading. It's the latest bestseller that proffers a new parenting strategy. What is its title? Non-Wrath Parenting, How to Love Without Consequences. How to Love Without Consequences. Question for you. Should God do something about the brokenness of the world? Should God do something about human sin and wrongdoing? And if so, what? And what exactly could fix a sort of broken leg on a cosmic scale? All of creation like a bone is broken. And who can fix that? Well, the answer is wrapped up in atonement and bloody sacrifice. It's wrapped up in this. How bizarre. This is an image which we've visited already once this semester from Jeremiah as the the animals were split open, the blood flowed richly. Somehow this is the answer to the parable of the playground. How? Why? Atonement and sacrifice are two themes that we're going to cover today. But sacrifice is, of course, wrapped up, if you look at the biblical narrative, in other, other themes, other concepts, justice and injustice and the wrath of God and sin. So we're going to dive more deeply into these things today. But why did God need or demand a sacrifice? Well, let's look at Numbers chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. Here we see a broken window on the left and the passage on the right. Let me read it out loud for you. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the Israelites when a man or woman wrongs another. Breaking faith with the Lord, that person incurs guilt and shall confess the sin that has been committed. So notice there is a confession Confession of the sin. The person shall make full restitution for the wrong, adding one-fifth to it and giving it to the one who was wronged. If the injured party has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for the guilty party. So we see a concept that develops, that flowers up here in Numbers, it's elsewhere, too. That brokenness, injustice, sin requires not only repentance, not just confession, but reparation of some sort. So if I've got a window that the neighborhood child has thrown a rock through, That's fine for me to forgive him, but someone still has to fix the window. Think of human brokenness and sin. All of of creation, the entire cosmos, is one broken window. Who is going to fix it? It's one thing to name it, to confess it, but who's going to fix it? Leviticus. 
we begin to get a clue for how God will fix the brokenness. So we see a theme here in Leviticus chapter 4. If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull of the herd without blemish as a sin offering to the Lord. That's if the anointed priest sins. For certain, if the whole congregation of Israel errs unintentionally, not just intentionally, unintentionally, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and incur guilt, and it goes on. So we have, if it's a priest who sins or the whole congregation who sins, even unintentionally, when a ruler sins, doing unintentionally, any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord, his God ought not to be done and incurs guilt, it goes on. Verse 27, if any one of the ordinary people among you sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things, etc. Verse 32, if the offering you bring is a sin offering, is a sheep, you shall bring a female without blemish. You shall lay your hand on the head of the sin offering, and it shall be slaughtered as a sin offering at the spot where the burnt offering is slaughtered. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. How is that the answer to human brokenness on a cosmic scale? Brokenness of any sort, known or unknown, intentional or unintentional, be it a people or a priest or a ruler. Well, we might ask rightly, is this God worthy of worship? The God who needs slaughtered, bloody animals to satisfy a sense of justice? In fact, this is exactly the point at which some people get off the train of Christianity. There is a kind of notorious atheist, Richard Dawkins. You have perhaps heard of him. He wrote a book called The God Delusion, and he has an extended quote, which I'll read to you, and it goes like this. It's quite colorful. He writes, I have described atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad, but for its ubiquitous familiarity, which has dulled our objectivity. If God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having himself tortured and executed in payment, thereby incidentally condemning remote future generations of Jews to pogroms and persecution as Christ killers? Did that hereditary sin pass down in the semen too? Quite colorful. Paul, as the Jewish scholar Giza Vermes makes clear, was steeped in the old Jewish theological principle that without blood there is no atonement. Indeed, in his epistle to the Hebrews, he said as much. It continues, Progressive ethicists today, Dawkins writes, find it hard to defend any kind of a retributive theory of punishment, let alone the scapegoat theory, executing an innocent to pay for the sins of the guilty. In any case, one can't help wondering, who was God trying to impress? Presumably himself, judge and jury as well as execution victim. 
To cap it all, Adam, the supposed perpetrator of the original sin, never existed in the first place, Dawkins supposes. An awkward fact, excusably unknown to Paul, but presumably known to an omniscient God and Jesus, if you believe he was God, which fundamentally undermines the premise of the whole tortuously nasty theory. Oh, but of course, the story of Adam and Eve was only ever symbolic, wasn't it? Symbolic? So in order to impress himself, Jesus had himself tortured and executed in vicarious punishment for a symbolic sin committed by a non-existent individual. As I said, barking mad as well as viciously unpleasant. Gosh, I wonder if he has any beef with the church. (laughs) I mean, goodness. But he raises some interesting points, and of course these are not points that theologians themselves have missed throughout the history of the church. There are, in fact, really good answers to these, these points which Dawkins raises. So again, what's going on here? Why the blood? Why the sacrifice? Why is this necessary for atonement, being made once again at one with God? Well, in true gym coach style, I have not one but two videos for you today, and I'm going to play the first video from the Bible Project, which treats these two questions of sacrifice and atonement. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hmm. Therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. The biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. 
And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant. And not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. Okay. So, I wonder what thoughts emerged as you watched the video, perhaps what ideas emerged that might address some of the questions 
or the problems that Dawkins raised, or some of the other, the other uh, questions that we've asked before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I know, you know, uh, N.T. Wright, who many of you know, a New Testament scholar and Anglican bishop, once talked about uh, when he was a, uh, a college chaplain at Oxford, he would often have conversations with students who were sort of newly, you know, uh, newly determined atheists. And um, he would ask them, well, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And they would enumerate these qualities of this God in which they have rejected and um, whom they've rejected. And he would say, well, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> right? So I think so often it's easy to kind of build a, a, a straw man out of passages of Scripture and knock it down, as opposed to dealing with the integrity and depth of the text itself. Um, to take scripture on its own terms, not just simply to interpret it as like a 21st century document or, or whatnot. Thank you for that point. Matthew. Uh, along the same point, uh, long story short, uh, philosophy professor Alex says you haven't read it, you can't criticize it. Hmm. Sure. Sure, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, and I would say that's true for any book, actually. <laughs> Um, and I'm sure Dawkins has read scripture, so we sh- I think we should be fair with him. Um, nevertheless, uh, there is a what we call a hermeneutic, an approach that Dawkins uses to scripture that I think doesn't actually take scripture on its own terms. It doesn't interpret scripture according to the genre, genre in which it is being expressed, you know, given the story that he might be engaging. Well... Haven't we evolved, though, beyond the notion of sacrifice? I mean, that's a fair question to ask. We're not sacrificing animals anymore, right? I mean, we didn't sacrifice an animal on that altar at the 9 o'clock service. There was not blood spilling down all over it. I mean, sacrifice was a bloody mess, literally. People would be disgusted. I'm sure if we started this, attendance would would drop. (laughs) So does this mean also that sacrifice is simply an antiquarian idea for which we have no need? Well, Jordan Peterson is an individual that some of you might know, and I don't, you know, follow everything that he he um, does. I, I don't believe everything that he espouses, but he has come out with. Um, a book and a number of other kind of videos where he's interviewed talking about the Cain and Abel story. I'm sure you remember that story. Cain and Abel both make a sacrifice to God, and one of their sacrifices is accepted, the others is not, thus the first murder. And uh, Jordan Peterson is talking about what does it mean to make a sacrifice, and do we still make sacrifices of sorts in our own culture. Do we make sacrifices? That's the question. And it's easy for us to think that we don't make sacrifices of the sorts that were made in the ancient Near East, more generally, or in the Hebrew Scriptures specifically. But in fact, Peterson wants to argue the opposite. And he does so in this video. It's a bit high-minded and circuitous, but just stick with it and then we'll unpack it a little bit in a moment.
first acted out, then represented in ritual. Those would be the rituals of sacrifice. Then laid out in story, then turned into a psychological phenomena so that now we're capable of making sacrifices in abstraction, right? To conceptualize a future that we want, to let go of the things that are stopping us from moving forward, and to free ourselves from the chains of our original preconceptions. And that's laid out in these old stories as the optimal pathway of being. And there's a philosopher of science named Karl Popper, a very sensible and down-to-earth person, who was talking about thinking and its nature, and he was thought about thinking in a Darwinian fashion. He said, the purpose of thinking is to let your thoughts die instead of you. It's a brilliant notion. And so the idea is something like, you can conjure up a representation of yourself. You can conjure up a variety of potential representations of yourself into the, in the future. You can lay out how those future representations of yourself are likely to prevail or fail. You can call the potential yous in the future that will fail, and then you can embody the ones that will succeed. You do that well simultaneously conjuring up a representation of your current state and determining for yourself because of your undue suffering, which elements of your pathetic being need to be given up so that you can move forward into that future. What is it that you're aiming at with that work and that sacrifice? That's the ultimate question. It's the question I was trying to address in that writing. What is it that you're trying to do? Well, you're trying to improve the future. We believe that the future can be improved. We believe that it can be improved as a consequence of our sacrificial work. And so, once again, what are the limitations? What are the limits to that? What are the necessary limits to that? I would say we don't know. I would say as well that that's actually something that the entire corpus of biblical stories is trying desperately to articulate, to figure out and articulate, right? We conjured up this remarkable idea. The future exists. We can see it even though it's only potential. We can adjust our behavior in the present in order to maximize our probability of success in the future. How best to do that? Well, the idea is something like, don't hesitate to offer the ultimate sacrifice if you want the future to turn out ultimately well. Now, obviously, that idea is clothed in metaphysical speculation and religious imagery, but it still remains an intensely practical issue. Right? What is it that you could contract for, let's say, if you were willing to give up everything about you that's weak and unworthy? The proper sacrificial attitude produces a psychological state and then a social state that's a manifestation of that attitude that decreases the probability that the world will careen into hell and increases the probability that people will live high quality, meaningful, private lives in a society that's balanced and capable of supporting that. And none of that seems to me to be questionable, really. I also don't think it's anything that people don't actually know. You know, people have told me many times that when they listen to me talk, they're hearing things that they already knew but didn't know how to say. It's something like that. And this is what
one of those things that I think is exactly like that. I mean, I think it's at the very core of our moral knowledge, which is our behavioral knowledge and our perceptual knowledge. I mean, let's get this straight. Moral knowledge is no trivial matter. It's knowledge about how it is that you orient yourself in the world. There's no more profoundly necessary form of knowledge. Well, it's predicated on on something that's exactly like this. We know that we have to make sacrifices. We know that we have to aim at what's good. So then why isn't that we don't aim at what's best and make the sacrifices that are necessary in order to bring that into play? I think it seems to me that in some sense that's self-evident. The question is why we don't do it. But there's answers to that too already in the material that we've covered. Life is hard and it hurts people. It's rife with limitation. And some of it's arbitrary. And some of it's unjust, and some of it's worse, some of it's malevolent, which is even worse, and something I haven't talked about at all in this lecture. It's not surprising that that combination of vicissitude can turn people against being. But I think even when that happens, and even when people have the kind of history that if they revealed to you, you would say, well, it's no wonder you turned out that way. The people who turn out that way still know that it's wrong. They still know that however deep their own suffering, however arbitrary their own suffering, however much that's caused by the malevolence of others, as well as the tragedy of existence, that that does not in any way justify their turning away from the good. And I believe everyone knows that. I believe that they know it implicitly, even if they don't allow themselves to know it explicitly. And I believe that if they violate that idea, then they violate themselves and that they end up in Cain's position, which is the position of the man who's been given a punishment that is too great to bear. So what's going on there? What is Peter? Well, it seems to be minimally. He's not just saying sacrifice is some kind of inner psychological state that affects the world, but that it's more deeply woven into the very fabric of creation. That turning towards the good requires sacrifice, just on any basic level, whether it's, uh, whether it's exercise or it's saving money for our children's college fund or insert any other example here, right? That sacrifice itself, turning towards the good, wanting to change the future towards a good end involves inherently and necessarily sacrifice on every level. But sacrifice was simply concretized differently in the ancient Near East and with Israel than it is with us. In Israel, it was, let's slaughter a lamb. Now, besides our sacrifice of praise and worship and thanksgiving, it is, let's put aside this money for my child's college fund. But sacrifice, as a way of being in the world, is woven into the very fabric of what it means to be human and to turn towards the good. Does that make sense? So, the question that we started with is, is sacrifice an antiquarian notion? I think the answer has to be, resoundingly, no. But how do we understand sacrifice? How does it meaningfully interact with our own lives? Now, Christians want to hold on to sacrifice that is still very much rooted in the scriptural story. Jordan Peterson is not a Christian at this point that we know of. 
But here's what N.T. Wright says. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath, a response to sin and brokenness, is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another. He is neither loving, nor good, nor wise. And the Christian scriptures say to this, of course God is good, and loving, and wise, and he wants us to participate in his wisdom, in his goodness, in his love, and thus he calls forth sacrifice. We see Ultimately, though, that he is the one who will make the ultimate sacrifice because we are incapable of doing so. Romans 3, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. And Romans continues in chapter 8, he who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? So what does God do about the Tonka truck being slammed down on the cosmic leg of all creation and broken? He puts himself in that position. Before I land the plane, let me just mention here what C.S. Lewis says about atonement. That's a picture of him there. Good-looking chap. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Happiness and comfort is not the primary goal in Christianity, although I think it is a byproduct of the one who lives within the sacrificial economy of this God. But it's not where we start. That's actually a gift that is received from participating in the good fruit of the one who was sacrificed for us. So Lewis writes, when we talk about atonement, there are a lot of different models out there. He says, you can say that Christ died for our sins. You may say that the Father has forgiven us because Christ has done for us what we ought to have done. You may say that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You may say that Christ has defeated death 
They are all true. If any of them do not appeal to you, leave it alone and get on with the formula that does. And whatever you do, do not start quarreling with other people because they use a different formula from yours. His point is for us to embody a kind of humility as we steward this conversation, as we seek to understand what's going on with the terms of sacrifice and atonement. But minimally, I would just want to say this. I would want to talk about the beauty of sacrifice and atonement. The beauty of sacrifice and atonement. This, uh, I borrow this from, from Tim Keller. I did not find this on my own. But he says, Cicero wrote that the crucifixion was the Roman way of saying, if you dare mess with us, there is no limit and no restraint on the violence that we will do to you. And the Christian God says in return, if you dare mess with me, there is no limit and no restraint to the violence that I will endure for you. This is the good news of the atoning God who sacrifices himself for us. So turning back to Dawkins' problem with the doctrine of the atonement, with an understanding of sacrifice... It is not an image of God who must satisfy, satisfy his, his bloodthirst. It is the image of a God who will go all the way to the cross to satisfy his love thirst, his thirst for us, to be drawn up into his life, which really is life. And so he goes all the way to the cross and says, I thirst. I thirst for you to thirst for me. I will give my very life to embody that thirst. So I want to close with a prayer, but we do have three minutes. So I just want to, this is a very basic overview of atonement and sacrifice. And we could say a lot more and theologians have throughout the history of the church. But um, I hope this is giving kind of a, a good general understanding of the concepts and, and, and the biblical vision. But what questions do you have or what might you want to contribute or add? Yes. I mean, that is a remarkable question. And, and I think in part what I would say is, I mean, as early as possible, you could start sort of floating some of these concepts, but in ways that are age-appropriate. I mean, for instance, <laughs> like, uh, you could talk about chicken nuggets. And um, not that the chicken nuggets my son eats are, are real chicken, but, you know, you could say, listen, like, I mean, this also gets at sort of an understanding of where food comes from. Like, something had to die. Something had to die to give you life. Like you were eating something that died so that you can live. And that is basically the story. My life for yours, says the chicken in the chicken nugget, right? So I, do, I think that that would be one way of kind of entering into the story. Um, if, your chi- if your child is old enough to know that an animal had to die to make their hamburger, then I think they're old enough to be taught my life for yours. And that's a real practical way in which that works out. They're taking into their very body life. This is the understanding of the Eucharist. This is my body given for you. My life for yours. We receive into our body the life of Christ 
such that we can be the body of Christ in the world. So there's a lot of parallels to be connected there, a lot of dots and whatnot. Is that kind of getting at what you're asking? Okay. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. I mean, James was watching Jordan Peterson the other day, so I don't know. I'm just kidding. Just definitely not. Other questions? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and thank you. That's a great point. And I think in part what I would want to say to that is that um, is we, we live in a culture that that loves to um, that loves that God is love, right? So we take that passage, God is love, and we ultimately make love God. <laughs> love is not God. God is the God who shows us what true love is. So love always has to be defined according to the love that is revealed through Christ chiefly on the cross. So whatever we say about love, any instance of love that happens on the ground, it's really a reflection of, if it is true love, it's a reflection of the the maximal understanding of love embodied in Jesus himself, chiefly on the cross. Um, and I would say God's attributes are not in competition with one another. Uh, his love is not in competition with his holiness. But his holiness is also a concept that is critically important. And we'll talk about that actually in a few weeks. The sense of set-apartness, that God is other. <laughs> um, we could get at this through the understanding of just minimally that we're creatures and God is creator. We are not the creator. That was the problem in Genesis, elevating themselves to God. And um, so, so I, I guess that would just be an initial response, and there's a lot more that we could say, but our time is up. So come back next week, and we'll continue the conversation, and uh, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.